Hey, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 10, the season finale of the Building Lifelong Athletes Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you've been tagging along with us for the previous nine episodes, we've talked all about cardiovascular disease. We've talked about lipids and statins and medications and cholesterol and you name it. We've talked about it, so we've covered a lot of stuff. And I'm hoping in this episode to kind of have a synthesis episode. So this is essentially my approach to how to make sense of this entire season and how to practically apply things. So hopefully after this, you can have some practical take-home tips to, that you can implement right away and, and get a better grip on things. But I want to kind of re-break everything down and kind of distill it to the most important highlights. So it's almost like a Cliff Notes version of the previous season. All right, so let's go all the way back to the start. We're going to talk about lipid metabolism. If you remember, at a super long and nerdy conversation about lipid metabolism, it was pretty in-depth. Um, and honestly, for most people, probably too deep than anyone needs to know. But we're going to talk about the big, big highlights here. You know, first things first, we talk about why do we care about cholesterol in general? Well, cholesterol is essential. We need it. It's all of our body helps us do lots of things in our cells. It actually makes up components of the cell. So it's really, really critical. And how we get it is, well, we can actually absorb it or we can make it ourselves. So we can either make it or we can absorb it. Two important things there. And so when we have these each of these pathways, right, we can make it or we can absorb it. There's kind of two main enzymes that we're going to talk about. Specifically, when we're making it in the cholesterol, we're going to talk about HMG reductase. When we absorb it, we're going to talk about the neiman pick type C1-like 1 protein. So Cholesterol, when we're making it in the liver, right, it goes through a bunch of different steps. It's like 30 plus steps, you know, not important to know necessarily, unless you're getting a biochemistry degree in that. But the main and most important thing we want to talk about is HMG reductase, which is the rate limiting enzyme. So the rate limiting step, rate limiting enzyme happens here. And this is actually where our statin medications work, right? So when we take a statin, it blocks HMG reductase. What this does is it decreases the amount of cholesterol that's made in our body. So that's one way we can do it. Another way is we can decrease how much we get how much we absorb of the cholesterol. And that can be done through blocking the neiman pick type C1-like 1 protein. So essentially what happens there is it blocks absorption on the intestine and decreases the amount of cholesterol in the serum. So we have multiple ways to do it. There are additional ways as well, but these are kind of like the two main things when we talk about cholesterol absorption and cholesterol synthesis. These are the, the big ones that we talk about typically. Next, I just want to talk about the concept of lipoproteins. It's really important to talk about lipoproteins because we need lipoproteins to transport cholesterol, right? So cholesterol is not hydrophilic it's a lipophilic so it doesn't want to mix with our blood so we need lipoproteins to carry it around and these lipoproteins consist of things called chylomicrons vldl idl ldl and hdl and like i said these are the things that are going to be actually carrying cholesterol around because these can mix in with the blood which is essentially water and we can move around the body with those on top of that we have vldl idl and ldl all contain something called apolipoprotein B100. So we talked about apolipoproteins before, kind of these little proteins on top of these lipoproteins in general. So we'll find these little proteins inside of lipoproteins. Apolipoprotein B100, ApoB100 is a specific kind of that. And it's found on VLDL, IDL, and LDL. Essentially, these are the markers of our atherogenic particles. These are the ones that are predominantly going to get inside the endothelial wall and cause atherosclerosis. And this is not to be confused with apolipoprotein B48, which we see in common microns. So a B100 is separate from that. And then our HDL has apolipoproteins A, so not actually, it doesn't have apolipoprotein B. So these ApoB, this is the one everyone talks about in terms of ApoB, assessing your cardiovascular risk. These are found on BLDL, IDL, LDL, and helping us serve as a proxy for, you know, how many athogenic particles we have floating around. And on top of that, we talked about a lot of the athogenic ones. We, I want to touch on HDL too. So HDL, the main role is kind of responsible for reverse cholesterol transport. So you think about it, what it does is essentially taking cholesterol from other places in the body and returning it back to the liver, typically what happens. So it's kind of a, a recycler of some, of some point. And like I mentioned, it contains apolipoprotein A and not B, and that's kind of how we differentiate as well. And so we mentioned apolipoproteins going around, starting atherosclerosis. Well, what is atherosclerosis? Well, essentially, what is this? It's the accumulation of plaque in our arteries. And he said, most 
most of us have it without even knowing it. You know, autopsies of young, healthy people at war, you know, that died of other causes, they looked at it and they had the starts of atherosclerosis there. So most of us have it and don't even know it. That being said, will it ever become, you know, clinically significant? Hopefully not, and that's the goal, obviously, but most of us have it without even knowing, so it's super, super important. And what causes it? Well, it's a multifactorial process, but essentially what happens is we have a mix of lipoproteins and inflammation that creates atherosclerosis. So what happens is lipoproteins get into the subendothelial space of the arteries. So like I said that in the artery wall, the lumen, right? We got the tube, the, the layer right below that is the subendothelial space. We have the lipoprotein in there, and that starts a process of inflammation, which then brings in white blood cells and creates a thing called a foam cell, and they eventually start this vicious cycle of, hey, something's not here let's get some inflammation calm it down but then brings in more problems and more inflammation it kind of just starts this vicious cycle and then eventually if it gets bad enough you know it can block the whole artery that's one option or we can have kind of a piece break off and go downstream somewhere and cause something like a heart attack or a stroke and that's essentially what happens when we have a heart attack we have a piece of this thrombus that break off and, and goes downstream and causes issues so like i said that is atherosclerosis in a nutshell head since you have lipoproteins and inflammation they kind of get together create this huge bad party in your subendothelial space and it kind of encroaches in on your the narrowing of your vessel or can break off and go down and cause problems later so so then we have our lipoproteins, right? And we think they are directly related with atherosclerosis. So then there's something called the LDL hypothesis, meaning like, hey, the LDL or these ApoB containing compounds essentially play a direct role in atherosclerosis. So what the idea behind this hypothesis is that lipoproteins and deposited cholesterol play a direct role in atherosclerosis. And the higher levels, the more risk you have. And so like I said, it's gonna be a direct relationship with typically the more you have, the higher your risk is. Obviously it's not one-to-one, -one. you know, people who have super high cholesterol and they smoke and nothing happens to them. Other people have perfect cholesterol and and you know, nothing, and they have a heart attack. So obviously it's not a perfect, perfect science, but on average, when we look at the totality of evidence, you know, if you're floating around with a higher LDL or higher ApoB, you have a higher risk of having cardiovascular disease. And so what we talked about, like, why do we think this is the case? Well, we talked about our levels of evidence for this, and we have different levels of evidence. We know one, we have observational studies, right? We started to see, hey, there's an association with LDL and cardiovascular disease. We just saw this, you know, started early with just cholesterol before we can break cholesterol into LDL and HDL. We just said, hey, there seemed to be a relationship with more cholesterol having heart attacks. What's going on? So that leads us into a randomized controlled trial. So like, hey, let's test this idea. So what we kind of look at there is we look at lowering our LDL specifically with medications and see what happens. And we found that, you know, when we lower our LDL, we tend to have better outcomes. We have decreased heart attacks. We have decreased chance of mortality, all these things saying that, hey, when we targeted this one thing that we're looking for, we tend to have good outcomes. And then last, we have Mendelian randomization. So when we randomize something in a study, essentially what we do is we have a computer randomize things together. So we're not putting a specific group of people on one side and a specific group of people on the other. We're hoping that the randomization makes it about as equal as we can on one side and the other. Mendelian randomization, what it is essentially looking at people who are randomized, you know, during conception. So when the sperm and egg meet, we get a random set of genes. You know, when these people are randomized to the genes, what happens to them clinically? So like for an example, let's say someone has a genetic mutation that essentially mimics being on a PCSK9 inhibitor. So essentially we have PCSK9 that is inhibited. So therefore we're not breaking down our LDL receptors. So we have more LDL receptors, more LDL receptors will then lead to a decrease in circulating LDL. And we see, hey, what happens with these people who seem to have decreased LDL because of higher LDL receptors? Well, it looks like they have a decreased risk of cardiovascular disease. On the flip side, we also saw people who had you know, less of these receptors. So people who had like familial hypercholesterolemia a lot of times had fewer LDL receptors, which means they had more LDL floating around and they tend to have a high risk of cardiovascular disease. So like I said, it's an association, but it's a little bit stronger than that because we're using kind of Mendelian randomization. So we're kind of getting these random traits to see how they do in the future with the outcomes. But but between observational, RCTs, and Mendelian randomizations, those are kind of the three big things. And obviously, 
Not every study will perfectly defend this hypothesis, but the totality of evidence seems to be pointing in the direction where if we lower LDL, we tend to have less cardiovascular events. So that's kind of the LDL hypothesis and why we talk so much about this and why we care so much about it. All right, so next we move on to reading a lipid panel. So we've kind of talked about lipoproteins, cholesterol, all that stuff. Well, what tests do we actually get and how do I interpret it? Well, the first things first, we're gonna talk about the general lipid panel. You know, the main things that includes are triglycerides, total cholesterol, LDL, and HDL. But really there's kind of three main things on here that we're gonna look at. You know, first we're gonna look at our triglycerides. If it's over 500, it's like, stop there. We need to treat that immediately because your risk for pancreatitis is pretty darn high. And if you've never seen pancreatitis before, it is not a good time. Let me tell you that when I take care of patients with that, it does not look fun. And it can be also really risky too. So if triglycerides are over 500, we need to get that under control ASAP. If they're less than 500, then we kind of can start working down our algorithm. You know, obviously if it's like 300, 400, that's still not good. That's still very high. We want to, you know, correct that. There's some association with elevated triglycerides and poor metabolic health and cardiovascular outcomes, but it's not as like slam dunk. But that being said, it's like a marker. And I kind of look at our triglycerides, you know, what we're looking for the goal for triglycerides, man, I'd love to see them under 100. Like I don't want to see them above 100, you know, pretty much the lower, the better. Um, but if someone is having elevated triglycerides, obviously way up there, like, well, that's, that's not great. But even for in that range of, you know, 100 to 400, like anywhere, you know, as we start to creep up, I'm getting more and more concerned that someone might have some insulin resistance or, you know, kind of a marker of poor metabolic health in general. But like I said, just down and dirty is if your triglycerides are way elevated, we need to take care of it. If it's lower than that, um, we, we can start looking at other stuff too. But my goal hopefully is to get you at least under 100 on that. And then after triglycerides, we're gonna look at our LDL. So LDL, the goal is less than 100. You know, there's other societies that say like 130. I'm a little more aggressive. I usually say 100, so that's what I go for. And the lower, the better. Like if you're saying, hey, I'm at 60, that's awesome, man. I'm super pumped for you. That's gonna be great. You won the genetic lottery, and I have no problem with that. You're gonna live a long, healthy life, hopefully. Um, and so there's no like minimum that we necessarily have to have for that. But under 100 is where we tend to see like improved outcomes. So that's what we're looking for. That being said, if our triglycerides are elevated, even to the point where, you know, we're getting in the couple hundreds, hopefully we can use something like an ApoB or a non-HDL. So non-HDL would be the total cholesterol minus HDL to get the non-HDL. So that's essentially a surrogate for ApoB. Um, it's just a little more accurate. When we have high triglycerides, it can kind of throw off the calculation for LDL. So if we have triglycerides, we like getting ApoB or non-HDL, that's ideal. But if in doubt, ApoB is probably preferred because it contains all those athogenic particles. Like we talked about there, it's gonna be the VLDLs and the LDL predominantly. And then like I said, if we're looking at other things too, we're gonna to look at HDL. You know, we we look at that just kind of a general idea, like the triglycerides. We're not treating specifically to that. You know, triglycerides you do if it's above 500, but for HDL, there's no real treatment goal. You know, hopefully men should be above 40, women should be above 50, but we're not titrating to that. It's just once again more of a marker saying, hey, if your HDL is really low, I kind of wonder, uh, is there insulin resistance going on? Are they not medically healthy? Who knows? That's good. We go from there. And then I do want to talk about ApoB, though you won't necessarily get these. Like on a standard lipid panel, it has to be ordered separately. I just want to at least mention it. So if you, you know, an LDL about 100, right? that's our goal. So the general that brings out to an ApoB of about 90. And so that's a little high. We want to get around, you know, 90 to 95 is about a 50 to 50 percentile. So ideally goal is to shoot under 85 or below. Like I said, we're still learning more about this. We do not have like standardized numbers saying, hey, society say you need to do this. And so we're kind of basing off of like percentile. So saying, okay, it's this ApoB is about this LDL, so we want to be around here. And so, like I said, my goal is be like for sure under 85. And then once again, the lower the better. It's not going to be any worse if you're any lower. So once again, ApoB, if we're going under 85 at minimum, we should be in a good starting position there. 
All right, let's talk about imaging now. Let's say you've had our labs and you say, hey, I want some more information so I can make an even more informed decision. Well, this is where imaging comes in. So the two big ones we can have are CAC or coronary CT angiogram. CAC or coronary artery calcium is a less expensive and kind of down and dirty, shows a big picture. What we're essentially doing is doing pictures of the heart and the coronary vessels to see, hey, is there any sort of calcium in there? We can't really quantify. We can use kind of density and scoring to figure out, hey, what's going on? But we can't actually see inside um, of, of the arteries at all, but it's kind of give us an understanding, hey, if you have a lots of calcium, that means we have lots of atherosclerosis going on. So the higher score, the worse. Like I said, this can be helpful. And then we have the coronary CT angiogram, which does have better pictures. It's going to be a lot more expensive. And so it does, you'll be able to look inside you know, the arteries and kind of see, hey, what's going on? What's, what's going on there? But the vast majority of people, CAC is where we should start. You know, coronary CT angiogram is pretty much for those people who are really high risk or, or have a lot of money, just burn a hole in their pocket because it's expensive. Both of these are covered, you know, are not covered, so they're out of pocket typically, but CAC is going to be less expensive. All right, so what's the importance of this? Well, essentially, it's just another piece of the puzzle, right? So if your LDL is like 400 and your CAC is zero, I might feel better that you're not gonna have a heart attack like imminently, but man, this is not a get out of jail free card saying like, oh, like no big deal, I don't have that. Because once again, this is calcified calcium that we're looking at here. And so if you have you know, non-calcified plaques or atherosclerosis, that's not necessarily gonna show up on a CAC. And so you could still have that. And once again, we do think the lifetime exposure of LDL or ApoB particles is what matters. And so we kind of use this once again in a holistic picture. So you look at your cholesterol, you look at your other risk factors. You know, we talked about in depth on the ACC AHA guidelines in terms of risk enhancing factors. Put all those things together to figure out what is the next step for you. So, like I said, this is not a get out of jail free card, but it can be a very, very helpful piece of information. All right, so we've kind of talked about what we look for, you know, in lipids and then imaging. And so the question is, well, how do I? lower my LDL? How do you know how to make a difference in that? Well, there's a couple of main ways we can do that. It's through lifestyle and medication. Through lifestyle, it's going to be like the boring stuff that we talk about all the time, but it's critically important, you know, weight loss, exercise, and diet, right? So, you know, weight loss, when we start even getting like 5% weight loss, we're going to start seeing improvements in our lipid panel. Like I said, the more you lose, the better you'll see. It's pretty, pretty standard there. And exercise, like I said, it's not as strong in terms of an LDL lowering effect or improving our triglycerides, but once again, in combination with if we exercise and change our diet, we might have weight loss, but also exercise is just fantastic for pretty much everything. Uh, it affects all of our cardiovascular systems. And so it's very helpful in terms of, you know, artery health and all that stuff. Like I said, it's not gonna be like direct, like, Hey, exercise 30 minutes a week to lower your LDL this much. That's not how it works, but it's once again, a holistic understanding of all these things combined lead to a healthy lifestyle. And in terms of diet, there are things specific things that we can do. You know, the first thing is trying to limit saturated fat to about less than 7% of calories for the day. Um, it seems to be that around that seven to like 10 is where we start to see, or once we start going up above there, we increase our risk for cardiovascular disease. So kind of keep keeping saturated fat low. And then if we can switch to monounsaturated fat seems to be helpful. So even if you just think about like, Hey, switching out saturated fats for just unsaturated fats, that's going to be helpful. Um, the one thing that they have found in studies though, is if you switch saturated fat for like refined carbohydrates, so if you go from, you know, saturated fat with butter and you switch that out and you're just eating, you know, Cheetos instead, like they found that that doesn't really seem to help anything, but that's kind of intuitive. So switching to kind of whole, you know, whole foods and unsaturated fats might be really helpful. And on top of that, getting a referral to nutrition therapy, maybe a dietitian, something like that can be very helpful. And it seems to be that people have better outcomes than after, you know, after they talk with them rather than just talking with their doctor. So very, very important to talk with a dietitian that might be able to help as well. And then we also want to have stress management, right? We know that stress plays a role in things in terms of anxiety and inflammation potentially. And so it's once again, a holistic picture that we're looking for in terms of diet, lifestyle, stress management, all of that stuff. 
And in terms of, you know, if we're taking medications, we can start with nutraceuticals. So nutraceuticals are said are something usually over the counter, things that we can do to lower our cholesterol. There are certain things like plant sterols, which plant sterols essentially have structures that are similar to cholesterol, but they're plant-based. Essentially, they kind of like mimic in the body. They take the place of the cholesterol, and so you can't absorb it as much. And so what that does is that can decrease the amount of, you know, floating cholesterol you know, from in our bodies. And so that can be helpful to kind of replace that. Or you can also increase your daily fiber intake. They say you should get about five to 10 grams per day of viscous fiber. That's always a good idea to have increased fiber in our diet. It does lots of good things for us. And there's another thing called red yeast rice, which is essentially you know, lovastatin light. Long story short, red yeast rice, you know, after the extract, they essentially found that that's a lovastatin. So they processed that and they made a statin out of it. So this is kind of, you know, if you're saying, hey, I don't want to take a statin, but you take red yeast rice, well, you're kind of taking a statin. Um, it's just not pharmaceutical grade. And so, but that being said, it does have some LDL lowering effects. So you can do that if you're adamantly against that. Also, you might be able to take some omega-3 fatty acids. About four grams per day is like where we saw the outcomes on is where we saw improvement. And so like I said, pretty high, but like I said, seems to be a relatively well-tolerated um, nutraceutical. And other ones people talk about are things like berberine, vitamin D, soy, antioxidants, turmeric, resveratrol, I mean, shoulder shrug emoji. I don't know. I mean, you know the data is not super strong that these are going to make huge impacts. You know, if you're just burning a hole in your pocket and you want to spend money on these things, I guess you could try. But once again, the data is not fantastic and we'll see where it goes. My general advice for this, though, is eat lots of fiber, try to limit your saturated fat intake, and then lose weight if you have excess weight. And these seem to be the highest things, right? Right. And, and once again, basics are basics. If you're eating lots of fiber, which means you're probably eating lots of things like whole grains, vegetables, legumes, so like the things that we want to eat. If you're limiting your saturated fat intake, like I said, we're staying away from the things like butter, lard, ghee, lots and lots of red meat. You know, that's a pretty, you know, pretty standard recommendation as well. And then losing weight, uh, pretty much a recommendation for anything. If you have excess weight, that's going to help you with all your metabolic markers. So, and then like I said, if you if you really, really feel strongly that you need to take something on top of that, like a medication, and you know you want to try something, that's that's okay. We can try that. But like I said, for me, it's like at that point, I'd rather probably take a pharmaceutical grade medication. You know, I kind of rant all about that in my other video, but we talk about hey, we don't know what's in these nutraceuticals, right? So they don't have the same standards of pharmaceuticals. So when we have over-the-counter medications, they can have who knows what in there. And so like I said, I'm not going to rant about that. I've already did that, but like I said, it's up to you. And then on top of that, now we're talking about medications. There are multiple medications we can take that can lower our LDL. You know, the main ones being statins, azetamibe, and then PCSK9 inhibitors. The one thing I want to talk about is also that niacin fibrates don't seem to be helpful for that. And I know there's some videos floating around on that. Hey, niacin's a, a magic, magic, medication that it lowers LDL and increases HDL and it might lower LDL a little bit and it does increase HDL a little bit, but like the outcomes there don't seem to like have improvement. And so it, it doesn't quite have the data behind it, like the statins, is that a my or PCSK9. And when talking about statins, I need to talk about them because, you know, I just talk, I did a podcast about that, but muscle side effects are something to look out for. I mean, the most common side effect, but once again, the vast majority of people can still tolerate statin. It might be changing the medication, changing the dosage, or anything like that. Um, they do have risk for potentially increasing your risk of diabetes, but as I mentioned in that video as well, it seems to really, really only happen to people who are already like pre-diabetic. So if you're already like knocking on the door, they might, you know, go from pre-diabetes into diabetes. And what that means is like, when we're sitting there and it's like, oh, like 6.4 A1C and then all of a sudden 6.5. So now you're diabetic. It's not like a huge jump going from, oh, I had a four A1C to like a seven, nothing like that. Um, but it does have a slight increased risk of developing diabetes. I, I got to at least mention that. And then some people say, oh, you know, we worry about it causing dementia. It doesn't seem it, like it causes uh, increased risk of dementia. Um, if anything, it might have some protective effect, but like either way, the evidence isn't super, super strong, um, but it doesn't look like it's causing that.
And so here are some take home points, right? You know, my kind of synthesis of this is that cholesterol matters. You know, we know that it's necessary, maybe not sufficient, but definitely necessary for heart disease, right? We're having the cholesterol inside lipoproteins going inside the subendothelial space, getting, you know, some information, getting everything going, get, getting the party started. So we know that cholesterol matters because it plays a role in heart disease. And so, like I said, this is the most deadly preventable disease we have. So to be a lifelong athlete, we should kind of consider this as a very important aspect for kind of helping us keep healthy for the rest of our life. And so, my general idea is try to keep LDL at a reasonable level. And this can be achieved for many people through lifestyle changes. Like some can't, and that's okay. And that's where medications potentially come in. Once again, you're not a failure for taking medication. I know like online, a lot of people make you feel like, oh, if you take a medication, you're a failure. It's like, well, no, like that's not the case. There might be factors that you can't, you know, control. Let's say, hey, you live in a, a food desert where you can't get quality food to take apart on these nutritional interventions that I talked about. And, you know, so the options are either, well, take a medication or don't do that and continue elevated cholesterol. I don't think that's, I think it's a no brainer, you know, or let's say, Hey, maybe you've had a genetic condition where you have elevated cholesterol just because of your genes. Like recently, like, Hey, you shouldn't take a medication because your genetics, like the natural fallacy is super strong with this saying, Hey, like you can do everything naturally. And I think a lot of people can, I'm not saying that at all. I think you can achieve a ton of really, really important and really beneficial changes through lifestyle management. But like I said, using a medication doesn't mean you're weaker or wrong. It just means, Hey, this is what in this stage of life this is what we're doing. Like I said, and overall our cholesterol medications seem to be very safe and tolerable for the vast majority of people. And so once again, you do what you feel like your conscience can, can live with, right? If you're saying, Hey, I, I'm not going to take a medication or refuse to, that's okay. I'll still work with you and your doctor should still work with you. We'll do it. We'll figure it out. But like I said, it'd be, we'd be remiss if we didn't say, Hey, we have these tools and I want to be able to have every tool in my tool belt, right? Like I have diet, I have exercise, I have pharmaceuticals. I have everything I can do to help you, you know, live an optimal life. And that's what I'm going for really. And so at the end of the day, like I said, my general approach is that I've made an effort to increase my fiber to around 50 grams per day. That's like my general goal and trying to keep my saturated fat below seven eight percent of total calories um, i also exercise to meet the my personal goals and the physical activity guidelines and then i check my labs on a routine basis and i adjust these things as necessary right so i if you've got my, if i get my labs and my cholesterol is a little elevated then i think well, okay what can i change something from a dietary standpoint can i do any start medication like i said for me that's generally what i'm going for in terms of my interventions right now at this very moment so Remember, it's going to be personalized, right? You have a certain risk factors that someone else might not have, right? Maybe you have genetics that someone else doesn't have. So work with the physician to figure out what works best for you. Whatever you decide, I just want you to be informed and I truly informed and not just blindly following what you hear on social media, right? And so like I said, if you've gone, if you've tagged with me this long and listened to all my podcasts, man, then I really, I really appreciate that. But like I said, I'm trying to give you a deep understanding of what's going on and how we can be, you know, really well informed for these decisions. And like I said, Anytime you take a medication or make a change, like it doesn't mean you're married to it for life. We can always talk and things always change and science will change as well. But like I said, at this point in time, this is my general approach to, to how I manage with cholesterol. All right. And thanks so much for watching. I really, really appreciate it. If you made it this far, you are a rock star. I'm starting up a newsletter as well. So if you want to get research sent to you each week, let me know. You can sign up through my website. There'll be a link in the show notes. But essentially what I'm going to do is, you know, every time I read something that's interesting or a cool article, I'll send you write up a little, little write up. It'll just be a couple minutes. Won't be too long at all. It won't take much of your day, but just kind of give you some cool insights and some, some cool research that I'm looking at. So if you have any interest in that, please sign up. And if you like this show and are a fan of it, please comment, like, and if you could share it with a friend, that would mean the world to me. Now, thank you so much. Get off your device and have a great day. We'll see you later. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. 
The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.